Thank you very much. What a lovely welcome. Well, when Catherine Reynolds invited me to join you at lunch today, I think she did so partly because of my rather special links to the Smithsonian Institution and to Mr. Smithson, its founder. What the Smithsonian Institution and I have in common is this. Both of us are venerable. <laughs> These very walls are 155 years old, but they are only 70 years older than I am. <laughs> what I have in common with Mr. Smithson is that he was an Englishman who felt both admiration and affection for America. And I, born British, have felt the same way ever since I was old enough to understand what America is all about. Mr. Smithson never saw America, but he loved the country anyway. I first saw America when I was not quite three docking in San Francisco with my parents, my younger sister, on March the 1st, 1919. And 22 years later, I became a naturalized American citizen, loving the country then, as I do now. In a sense, Mr. Smithson become a, became a citizen too. He was an American in his heart. But there is still another link which binds me to the Smithsonian and to Mr. Smithson. It is my bond with my American teachers who devoted their lives to the increase of knowledge and its diffusion among their students and who, in my case, made upon my life an impact above and beyond all they imparted in the classroom. My story begins in the beguiling California village of Saratoga, which lies in the western foothills of what was once called the Santa Clara Valley and is now known as Silicon Valley. Saratoga was reputed to have an ideal climate, rivaled only by that of a temperate zone in Egypt. And it was in Saratoga that my mother settled with her two children at the beginning of the 20s in the last century. My father, having long since returned to his business in Tokyo, my birthplace, my mother's sole relatives in the vast continent of North America were her two small children. And when school age approached for her elder child, she, as an English woman, was in a quandary. In England, with its intricate social structure, it was imperative that a child go to a private school, 
contrarily called by the English a public school. But the nearest private school was miles away from Saratoga, and my mother wanted her children near her. When she learned that the California state schools of that day, with their attractive buildings, spacious grounds, small classes, and well-trained teachers, were the best in the entire country, my mother made a decision. We were living in a democracy, and I would be educated accordingly. And so, to Saratoga Grammar School, I ventured, age six, on a sunny September morning in 1922. I loved my teacher, Miss Richards, and I loved learning. I loved each teacher in succession and every subject taught. I also took home to my mother report cards embellished with exemplary grades. And in my final year at Saratoga Grammar School, I edited the school newspaper, placed second in the county spelling bee, and in the school operetta Hansel and Gretel, I played three roles, the mother, the head witch, and the second angel. High school now lay before me and my classmates. In 1930, on another sunny September morning, we gathered together at Saratoga's small depot and took a red trolley on a four-mile ride past fields and orchards to Los Scottis Union High School, a beautiful Greek building with gracious lawns before it and multiple playing fields alongside and behind it. I loved my teachers there, too. And this time, <clears throat> I loved almost all my subjects, working hard at those for which I had no aptitude and working joyfully at those for which I did. Again, I brought home to my mother exemplary report cards. However, there was now a second person who examined them, my stepfather. In 1925, after years of separation, my mother and father divorced. And my mother married a businessman who was highly regarded in the Santa Clara Valley, but was a tyrant toward his stepchildren. We dubbed him the Iron Duke. He expected high grades from us, but disregarding the requirements of homework, he laid down an inflexible rule, lights out, at 8.15. I did my homework with a flashlight under the covers. 
He also laid down a second rule, home from school by 3.45, no extracurricular activities allowed. In October of 1932, my English teacher, Margaret Douglas, cast me as the ingenue Violet in the junior play, Mrs. Bumstead Lee. The rehearsals took place after school hours. So at my peril, I broke the second rule and made it home just before the Iron Duke returned from his business in the city of San Jose. Then one day, after the posters were up, the tickets sold, and the performance of the play only a few days away, my stepfather discovered my treachery. When I came down for breakfast the next morning, my mother said that my stepfather had left for me the following message. You will either give up the play or leave this house forever. I went off to school with my decision made. I spent that night and several more with friends of my mother's, went on with the play, and never again slept in the house, which I left that morning in October of 1932. After the play, a group of my mother's friends, having raised for my benefit what was then the munificent sum of $200, enough to keep me for a year, I rented the pink and white guest room of a very kind lady named Mrs. Eva Lee Harriman. I would like to say that once settled in that peaceful, pretty room, I brought back to it report cards that were exemplary. But that was not the case. Sometime in the weeks that followed my leaving home, I wrote a poem which was later published in the school yearbook. Its second stanza reads like this. Weary the paths of this life we tread, on like a march of the tired dead. Where does it get us, this struggle and pain? What do we matter? And what do we gain? For the first time, these appeared on my report card. I looked at them numbly and did nothing to improve them. Then one day, Miss Douglas and Mr. Brantz my history and civics teacher, asked me to stay after school. I do not remember the words they said to me then, but I do remember that they were severe. Severe enough to turn my life around. 
The next year, I starred in the senior play, edited the yearbook, and graduated second in my class, sharing salutatorian honors with Keats Pullen, who later became an atomic scientist. I also won a scholarship to Mills College. I never got to Mills, but that's another story. <laughs> Suffice it to say, the three months after graduating from Blue Scottish Union High School, I found myself playing Hermia in Max Reinhardt's fabled Hollywood Bowl production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. In the audience on opening night were Charlie Chaplin, Betty Davis, and a host of other dazzling personages. And three months after that, I was under contract to Warner Brothers for the film version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, with awaiting me in the distant future five Academy Award nominations and two Oscars. In December of 1935, I repaid, I repaid to my mother's friends the sum of $200. I also sent Christmas cards to all my teachers, those at Saratoga Grammar School and those at Los Gatos Union High School. And this I did all through the years. But one by one, those beloved instructors who did so much more than increase my knowledge departed for what we may hope are the hallowed halls of heavenly wisdom. There is no one left among my teachers to whom I can send a Christmas card. But Margaret Douglas and George Bruns and all those other blessed teachers go on living in the minds and the hearts of their former students who are now themselves diminishing in number. As long as I live, they will go on living in mine. Thank you.